0: Sequence start. Space Nuts. Space Nuts.
1: Astronaut report
0: it feels good. Hello again. Great to have your company here on Space Nuts the podcast. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and Fred Watson joins me as always from the Australian Astronomical Observatory or from his lounge room, depending on where he is at any given time. Hello, Fred. Good day, Andrew. How are you going? I'm well and you? Yes,
1: I'm still in the lounge room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was very comfortable and very cosy, and why would you want to be anywhere else? Of course, that's Mm -hmm. right. Now, today, we're going to look at a a few things, uh, including a a listener question, which is uh, always welcome. Uh, But we're going to talk about solar flares and why they happen. They think they've uh, unraveled the mystery of of solar flares, so uh, we'll talk about that. And uh, we've talked about this in the past, but I'm glad it's come up again. Uh, NASA finally looks like it is going to send a submarine into space and plonk it down on a moon, I I suspect. Uh, And uh, that's very exciting news. Which one and why? I guess we'll learn. And uh, colliding dark matter, a question uh, from Andrew Mitchell. We'll get to that for you soon, Andrew. At first, the mystery of solar flares and why they
1: happen have they figured it out Fred? Uh, apparently, they have uh and <laughs> in, in in a lot of detail, and with terminology that i think um uh makes it easy to understand well, I think it does so um, maybe, maybe the, for man, do the cat, but not for <laughs> <laughs> well, quite right. Not for Look, he, he's across all of this, I can tell you. Uh, he sleeps through most of it, which is probably the correct answer. Um, so we know that the activity of the sun, of course, uh, dictates some of the things that happen here on Earth. So if you've got things like solar flares, um, they they unleash beams of charged particles into the sun's outer atmosphere, which uh, three days later or so uh, often uh, get to the distance of the earth and and actually um, can interact with the earth's magnetic field. And so we get displays of aurora borealis and aurora australis, and also sometimes disruptions to power supplies and communications. So we need to know about these things. We need to understand what solar flares are all about, how they work, how they are caused, and because of that, um, NASA in particular has, but other space agencies as well, have uh, a flotilla of spacecraft uh, in orbit around the sun actually studying the sun's surface. And principally because of those, but also because of ground-based observations too, we, we now know that um, the role of magnetism in these phenomena is uh, very, very high. So the, the the whole thing is basically driven by m- magnetism, and there's a lovely statement actually. Um, it's on the uh, the BBC report on on this, uh, which which summarizes it so well. Generally speaking, solar eruptions are caused by a sudden violent rearrangement of the sun's magnetic field, and that's what it is. Um, uh, often, it is a kind of magnetic twang. Uh, the field lines are broken. And that releases um, the plasma from the, the, the Sun's inner atmosphere out into space where it belts off across the solar system and can interact with the, with the Earth. But there is now um, a lot more known about the kinds of structures with, within, the, within the Sun's uh, atmosphere that, that cause these processes. They're often associated, Andrew, with uh, sunspots, uh, which we, we see, you know, in, even in small telescopes. No, you should never look at the sun through a telescope, but mm. you, can, uh, if, you can if you've got a solar filter on, specially made piece of equipment, or you can also sometimes project this, the image of the sun through the telescope uh, onto a sheet of paper or cardboard, so you're always looking with your back towards the sun. Um, it's easy to see these dark spots on the sun when you do that, the little black dots which actually have been known since before the invention of the telescope. Um, uh, William Herschel thought there were holes in the outer atmosphere of the sun that let us see down to its cooler surface underneath, and he expected to see people wandering around on there. No, but did that- he- <laughs> Yeah. You ne- never quite found those. Uh, but w- what we know they are now is regions where the temperature is slightly lower. But more especially, we know... That they are regions where these complex magnetic processes are taking place. So um, there are two kinds of structures and these are the ones that are now being more uh, deeply understood. Um, One is called a magnetic cage and a magnetic cage if you imagine that you know the magnetic field lines um, which which are the sort of thing that at school we used to demonstrate with a bar magnet and iron filings. Oh yes I love doing that one. (laughs) That's right, they're lined up along the field lines. Mm. <clears throat> so in a way, that's a, a crude model of a magnetic cage. Um, it's the field lines uh, which are between two poles of a magnet, and the magnet, of course, is, is on, the, on the sun's surface, it's where the sunspot is. So this magnetic cage also contains something else though a different set of magnetic activity and these are called ropes magnetic ropes so the magnetic ropes sit within the magnetic cage and the rope itself is almost like a twisted skipping rope it's it's actually in very vigorous motion that this is not a real rope it's just rope a rope of magnetism if i can put it that way yeah so if the uh, the contortions of the magnetic rope are strong enough; they will break through the magnetic cage that confines them, and that produces uh, a plasma eruption, something we call a coronal mass ejection. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a, a very strong solar flare. And so, <clears throat> the, the you know the, the the cage itself apparently plays a, a very important uh, role in all this. It's how strong the cage is depends on how well confined this energy is that the sun wants to spit out. But if you've got a strong magnetic cage, it won't do. Uh, So what's happening in this research is a combination of observations made by these various uh, NASA spacecraft, uh, sorry, uh, these various spacecraft such as NASA's Solar Dynamics Observatory—that's one that's uh, that's actually uh, looking at the sun constantly, um, but also using supercomputers to run simulations of what these what these things would do. Um, it, it is really interesting stuff. I have to say that I'm not an expert on the on the sun's uh, on the you know the dynamics of the sun's magnetic field, although I'm very interested in its effects, particularly when it causes aurory near the north and south poles of the Earth. Um, there there was one particular solar flare that's, that that uh, these researchers studied um, many of them are actually from a french institution uh, this was one that took place in october 2014 uh, and using the the, the the solar dynamics observatory data combining it with their with their supercomputer simulations they determined that with this one there was not enough energy within the magnetic robe to actually smash through the magnetic cage and cause a a coronal mass ejection but despite this the rope became very very highly twisted and what it produced was a, a, a large level of magnetic in, instability and apparently that sort of upset part of the magnetic cage and that allowed the solar flare, the blast of radiation to, to actually come through and in fact that did uh, have some disruptions on the earth when it reached the earth. Mm. So what, what is the point of all this? Well the point is to try and use these magnetic, uh, sorry, these solar observatories, the spacecraft themselves, to be able to predict exactly when a flare is going to occur and what its intensity might be. At the moment, all we can do is observe them and report them. We see a flare happening on the sun. We know if it's pointing in the right direction that a few days later we're going to get activity on the Earth. That's the, the job of these uh, observatory spacecraft, uh, the Solar Dynamics Observatory and others. But if you can... Combine, you know, observations of these magnetic fields with uh, with the, uh, the supercomputer simulations. Then you might be able to say, well, in a day or two, we expect there's going to be a solar flare here, and that then gives you longer warning as to what its consequences might be on the Earth. And, and so- that's the big concern because if we uh,
0: suffer a direct hit by a solar flare. Uh, we might have uh, another effect like they had in 1859 with what's, what I think they called the Carrington event, which, right, which wiped out telegraph stations because of the intensity. Now, they didn't have the technology then that we've got now. So imagine the effect today.
1: The Carrington, that's right. The Carrington event is the strongest um, solar uh, flair in, in recorded history. Uh, and indeed, it was in the infancy of uh, electric telegraph, particularly in the United States where uh, the, the railway era was in place, and it fried them all. It basically fried all the equipment. Mm. Uh, you're absolutely right that we are now so dependent on Electronics, uh, particularly in space, um, we we have flotillas of satellites that do all our day-to-day business for us uh, in terms of communications and uh, surveillance and you know re- resources management, all all of that stuff. Uh, is is the, the province of spacecraft. If you if you fry all those, then you're in big trouble. Um, it is true, though, that we now know of the risks, and so um, the, the, the the really uh, sensitive bits of spacecraft are protected within reasonably hardened metallic shields. But uh still it's uh it, it is a it, it, it is a, a risk that we on earth take in our modern era, and that's why uh funds are being invested in checking out what's going on on the sun and trying to understand it mm. well it sounds like we're one step closer to that
0: uh with the discovery of uh, of how these ejections take place so um uh, that's uh that's good news. So uh, Maybe we're in a position where we'll be able to go, okay, um, unplug your computers, bury them about 50 feet under the ground, <laughs> fingers crossed. <laughs> <It'll be okay. laughs> mm. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Dr. Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, back to the show now Fred to one of my favorite topics I've brought this one up with you a few times and we uh, I'm really excited to hear that there is now confirmation that NASA is planning to send a submarine into space I hope it's yellow I I don't really care what color it is but um,
1: (laughs) this is really exciting news Uh, it is it's um, it's still a project in its infancy Uh, you know it's a it's a group of nasa scientists and there are also university scientists involved with this who would like to propose sending a submarine uh, to saturn's moon titan uh, which we were talking about only a, a few weeks ago that's right yeah um, titan an extraordinary world the largest moon of saturn explored. Pretty well by NASA's Cassini spacecraft. Um, it's the only place in the universe other than Earth where we know there are liquids on the surface. Mm. And that makes it a very, very special environment. The liquids are not water, the temperature Uh, on the surface of Titan, is minus 184 degrees Celsius. Um, That is the liquid temperature. It's actually a liquid natural gas. It's a mixture of methane and ethane, very toxic, of course, uh, if we were around, but might just be a place where um, what you might call hydrocarbon microbes might have developed. Um, There is quite a body of opinion that suggests that maybe living organisms um, fairly rudimentary organisms but living organisms with uh, which use uh, rather than water as their working fluid as all life on Earth does that use ethane and methane as their working fluid maybe these things are swimming around in the seas of Titan uh, so what we want to do is explore them and that is the topic of I think a number of uh, what, what you might call blue sky proposals that are being put to NASA NASA has a very rigorous process of de- de- determining which spacecraft will go ahead and what projects and missions will go ahead. Um, I don't think any of these have yet got quite near the the, the really sharp end of the process, but certainly scientists are, are already working on this, um, on this um, sort of project. So just to give you an idea of the geography, these lakes and seas are uh, near the northern polar region of Titan. Uh, they are in what you might call depressions, I suppose, not in the rock uh, because Titan doesn't have a rocky surface. Its surface is made of solid water ice uh, at minus 184 degrees Celsius. It might as well be rock, uh, but it, it's very, very solid. And so the, the lakes and seas have pooled in depressions in, in, those, um, in, the, in the troughs of the northern region of Titan. Do, do um, we know why they're only in the northern hemisphere? It's thought to be due to the... Uh, the, the sort of almost like the, the tectonic activity on Titan, the influence of the fact that Titan is a moon going around a big planet which has tidal forces uh, um, imposed on it by the planet uh, and um, the, the I have read papers about why they're in the northern hemisphere and also why they only seem to fall within one specific area of the Northern Hemisphere, which is kind of more or less rectangular. It's, it's very interesting. I think it is to do with the gravitational influence mm. of Saturn. Because remember, um, um, I, I believe I'm right in saying that Titan is tidally locked to Saturn, so he always keeps the same face towards Saturn. Anyway, the, the uh, lakes and seas are big. Um, the biggest one, Kraken Mare, has something like 400,000 square kilometres uh, of, of liquid, um, it's actually in two parts. It's um, they're separated by a narrow channel. Uh, the second one is the Lig- Mare. That's not quite as big, but they're they're t- they're comparable in size with the Great Lakes of America. So they're not they're not small bodies of liquid. And you can imagine that a submarine would really be a great way to explore them and find out what's going on on the sea beds, if I can put it that way.
0: Do we know how deep these?
1: Mariah. Yeah, um, I think the deepest point of Mare is about 300 metres. It's, it's, you know, it's sizable stuff. Uh, and um, they, they're, they're, they're real, you know, they are real seas, these things. They're not being called seas just in a, in a gratuitous way. They're, they're very large. So um, what's been happening? Well, uh, Washington State University in the United States has built... A test chamber. That's why this is in the news at the moment. They've built a test chamber that houses the 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 same mixture of uh, uh, that we believe um, these seas on Titan are made of, ethane and methane, at the same temperature, uh, minus 184 degrees Celsius. And they've they've built that chamber to explore some of the properties of this supercooled liquid, because I know that researchers have looked. Uh, already, I remember reading something a year or so ago about uh, the, the the concerns that um, that uh, any submarine or other underwater vehicle would stir up bubbles uh, in the in the liquid because of the heat that it produces. It right. produces heat uh, as it's as it's driving along, and that actually causes bubbles, which actually make it almost impossible uh, to steer the submarine around because they, they, you know, the thing's surrounded by bubbles. So they've, they've basically, you know, the, the, the people at Washington State are doing that uh, that simulated uh, test chamber to try and understand what happens when you put a submarine in these sorts of temperatures and, and you release heat into it. Um, it's uh, really... Um, you know um, a, 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 a kind of blue sky science because we we know about liquid natural gas but we don't really know how it behaves in an environment like this one where the ambient temperature is so low um it is possible that the temperatures might get low enough on titan that that would freeze um freeze these lakes and that's really interesting because um, there is some nitrogen in the liquid as well. It's not just ethane and methane. And that modifies the temperature at which it it freezes. Um, We know that uh, Cassini observed things that might be icebergs in in the, uh, the large lakes and seas of Titan. And icebergs themselves, they seem, they, these were things that seemed to come and go. And there was a suggestion that as the temperature changes, they, they sink to the bottom or rise to the surface. Studies like that are really important before we actually start planning missions to these places. Because The last thing you want to do is send a submarine to Titan and then have it run into an iceberg. it would not be a good look oh, that's never happened before no uh, no, no
0: it's never never mm. happened <laughs> uh, so yeah the, the, I guess I got a bit premature when I thought they were actually doing this, but um you there's a lot of things they've got to consider. I suppose the other thing is uh would uh, a sea made up of these kites of uh petrochemicals, if you like uh be corrosive and yeah I, and that's they right. they'd have to allow for that, so no rubber it parts. <laughs>
1: yes yes that's probably true i mean uh, yeah rubber's going to be pretty inflexible at those temperatures anyway but yes the the, corros- the corrosion question is a good one uh, because it's it's something that um, it's fairly foreign to us now the fact that we keep liquid natural gas in, in uh, steel containers here on earth probably suggests that you can you can be reasonably sure that it's not going to corrode things but there will be bits certain materials that you would not want to use on on well, these another something. factor is i know i've been out um, very early to play
0: golf in minus two or minus three degrees and my mobile phone shuts down because the battery can't handle it. So yes. at these yeah. temperatures, that's another issue. I assume these things are going to run on battery.
1: Uh, they would have to. That's correct. Mm. Yeah. So that's another thing they need to figure out. A lot of work ahead. Um, I hope we see these uh, things going to tighten within our lifetimes. I there. do too. I really, I really want to see them plonk
0: one down there and see what we can find. And you, know, you and I have spoken many times about the, um, the search for uh, microbial life within our solar system. Here's an opportunity. I reckon uh, take the bull by the horns and see what happens.
1: Absolutely. Get there. I'm with you there. (laughs) Mm.
0: All right. We'll keep an eye on that particular story, of course. You're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson, and I'm Andrew Dunkley.
1: Three, two, one.
0: Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, uh, another audience question. We love these. And again, like last week, this one's... got some super thinking, super computer thinking going on here, I reckon. Uh, hi there, Andrew. I've just listened to the latest podcast, which is not the latest podcast anymore. Uh, fascinating story on Australia's own satellite and rocket launch. Gee, this one does go back. Sorry, Andrew. We've been really slow in the uptake with this one. Uh, I have a question for Fred. Your discussion about the possible first detection of dark matter got me thinking about whether dark matter would interact with itself gravitationally if so there may be potential that it would clump together and collide with itself so could a future gravitational wave observatory detect collisions between dark matter bodies that's um yeah. that's a good one uh, and it's, look he's asking a what if what if what if question i think but um worth
1: investigating yes it is and uh, it's a good thought i mean you know uh, we know that um, gravitational waves are caused by masses being accelerated. Uh, so, I think the kind of scenario um, that um, Andrew describes is not what would produce gravitational waves because um, what, what you would have would be a cloud of, of dark matter and it's whatever subatomic particles they are, this is as yet an unknown species of subatomic particle. Um, and if the dark matter particles were interacting gravitationally, it would not be a sudden acceleration of a single mass, which is what you need to actually stir up space-time enough to produce gravitational waves. But it is a great question because um, we believe that dark matter part particles do interact with each other. that they, they do collide. And there is um, a, a theory um, that if dark matter particles are a pa- particular hypothesized species of subatomic particle, and I think these are probably axions, there's, there's um, things called neutralinos, which are a candidate for dark matter particles, as are axions. I think this refers to axions. If they collide, then what they will do is annihilate each other but produce gamma rays. And gamma rays are like high-energy light waves, but they have a particular spectral signature. That's to say, if, um, if you analyze the different wavelengths of gamma rays that are coming out, uh, then you'll get a, you know, a peak at certain wavelengths, uh, which is a signature just of these dark matter particles being annihilated. So that's one of the areas that people are studying. They're looking in the centers of galaxies, which is where we think the density of dark matter particles is highest. We think they clump together in the middles, middles of galaxies. So they're looking there for any sign of this gamma ray signature that might betray large numbers of these particles colliding and annihilating to the best of my knowledge that has not yet been seen uh, although I think there have been some tantalizing observations uh, actually made in our own galaxy. Um, you, you know, we we are 25 or so thousand light years from the center of our galaxy, so it's the obvious place to look for these self-annihilating dark matter particles. Um, and I, I believe tantalizing signals have been seen, but nothing yet that determines that, yes, we have last identified what dark matter is. It's good thinking, though. Um, It's probably the way that we might find out exactly what's going on. Yeah, maybe. Uh, And it's a difficult question to
0: answer because uh, everything about dark matter is virtually theoretical. uh, It's it's a matter of um, combining ideas and see which ones are workable, investigating them further, try to find the proof. But so far... Not much.
1: Not, not much, much going on
0: there. We just, we just know it exists because there's just so much that's not detectable in the universe, but we know something's got to be there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's detected really by its gravitational influence on things that we can see. Mm. So, you know, it's uh, the, the, the classic observation that galaxies should be flying apart if there was no dark matter there but the gravity of the dark matter is what holds them together. So um, the evidence is very, very strong for the existence of dark matter. Uh, It's just finding out what it is that's the the tricky bit.
0: It's all this dark stuff that we can't see. Like we we know black holes exist, but we just haven't actually observed one directly. And this is another example of it. We know this stuff probably exists, but we just don't
1: see it. Yes. We could just turn the light on and, oh, there they are. it would be nice wouldn't it maybe in some way there'll be a kind of uh, a metaphorical light that we can shine on dark matter particles and work out what what they are maybe maybe
0: All right, Andrew thank you so much for the question hope we um, made a dint in answering it for you and keep the questions coming because we do enjoy trying to solve some of the puzzles you come up with well I don't I I wouldn't have a clue but Fred does it's a big kick out I wouldn't
1: have a clue either (laughs) Fred thank you so much Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk to you, as always, and um, we'll speak again soon. We will indeed.
0: That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Keep the cards and letters coming in if you're old school or maybe uh, message us via Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we do enjoy that too, and we would love to hear from you um, as uh, as things develop. And if, if there's a topic we've discussed that throws up questions in your mind, and that is the nature of astronomy, then fire off the questions because it might just open up a whole new dialogue that, um, You know, could solve one of the great mysteries of the universe. Who knows? But uh, yeah, we'd we'd be pretty keen to hear from you. So thank you again for listening. Don't forget to share us on Facebook and Twitter and tell your friends and uh, write nice articles about us in the press. And we will talk to you next time on Space Nuts. Space
1: Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audio Boom, and Stitcher or your favorite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from sites.com.